You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Every year for Christmas, my kids receive a bunch of toys from my parents. Their grandparents load them up with toys, and I usually spend the rest of Christmas Day putting them blasted toys together. And every year, we run into the same problem. We have a bunch of gifts, but we have the wrong batteries. Do I have anyone else who knows something about that pain? (laughs) Some of the kids are raising their hands. (laughs) We have a bunch of gifts that require AA batteries, but all we have are AAA batteries. And I do the same thing every year. I start trying to figure out how to make that gift that requires AA power, I start trying to figure out how to make it work with AAA batteries. I do it every year, every year. I know good and well that this item requires a different kind of power, but I'm determined to use an insufficient power supply that will not bring this item to life. And I think this often characterizes our approach when it comes to our lives, and our callings. Every person in this room has received a bunch of gifts from God. You have a sharp mind. You have relationships. You have callings. You have opportunities. And these are all gifts from God. But these gifts require a certain kind of power to operate. The abundant life we were meant to have Every relationship we've been given to cultivate, every good endeavor we've been called to pursue, each of these gifts require the spiritual power of God. You need the spiritual power of God to live the life that you were meant to live. You need the spiritual power of God to fulfill the purpose that God has for you. You need the spiritual power of God for your parenting, for your marriages, for your work, for your neighboring. But so often, we try to get life to work by using the wrong kinds of power. We try to live a double-A life off a triple-A power, if you catch my meaning. We try to fulfill double-A callings with triple-A power. And when it doesn't work, We often abandon the calling when we only need to identify the right power source. How many people have hit the eject button on a marriage? Because they've been relying on their own power, not the spiritual power of God. How many people have abandoned the calling to neighbor love because they're fearful and they're relying upon themselves and that's why they're fearful and they abandon the calling rather than changing the power source? We try to run our lives on mere intellectual power. But sooner or later, we realize that we're not smart enough to produce full flourishing in our lives. We try to run our lives on mere willpower. But sooner or later, we figure out that determination is not enough to bring the abundant life that we long for. We try to rely upon financial power and soon discover that we cannot spend ourselves into the life of flourishing and into the life of witness that we've been called to. True flourishing is an illusion, a mirage without the spiritual power that God supplies. 
I want to ask you this morning, and I want you to really think about it. On what kind of power are you trying to run your life? On what kind of power source are you trying to run your life? Our text for today introduces us to the spiritual power of God. And I know that there are many people who talk about being spiritual but not religious. And there are also lots of people who you could say are religious but not spiritual. So we need to explore this text to see the source and the effects of Christian spirituality according to Scripture. And what we're going to see is that Christian spirituality is not vague. It's not ethereal. It's not wishy-washy. It's not privatized. It's not cafeteria style. Christian spirituality is defined. It is powerful. It is transformative. And it is personal. It deals with a person and it deals with people. The spiritual power of God, Christian spirituality, is personal in that way. So we're going to approach our text through these two points as we consider spiritual animation and spiritual participation. So let's take a look at our first point where we, where we see spiritual animation. Now, there is a rich background that is given to us in the very first verse of our passage when the text tells us that the day of Pentecost had arrived. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, that gives us the setting. And Pentecost is a rich, rich, rich illusion that we need to become aware of. Pentecost was Israel's annual celebration that came 50 days after Passover. And what they would do during Pentecost is that Israel would collect the first fruits of their harvest. And they would, they would take those first fruits and they would bring them to the temple and they would do a wave offering before the Lord with the first fruits of the harvest. And in that wave offering, they were expressing an act of faith which said, we believe that this is only the beginning of a greater harvest that is to come. That's what they were saying. And not only were they expressing by faith an expectation that there was a greater harvest to come, but there is also an association that Israel made between Pentecost and the Exodus, the giving of the law. Now, we've spent a great deal of time in the book of Exodus, but if you haven't been with us when we went through that, the story of Exodus is the story in which God sets his people free. And after he sets his people free from bondage in Egypt, he then brings his people to Mount Sinai, where he is going to give them their rule for life. He brings his people to Sinai. Then Moses ascends Mount Sinai. And Moses comes back down with the law, which we also recently covered, that gave Israel their moral and ethical code. It gave them their guidance for the way that they were supposed to live as God's people. Now, when you take these illusions together in this context, Pentecost, as it develops in this text, is basically a, a way of us seeing that what is going on here is that on this day, we see the first fruits of a greater harvest that is to come. 
Do you see this in the text? They start with 120 people praying in a room. And on that very day, 3,000 people come to faith through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And not only that, remember that Jesus had just made his exodus out of the grave. And the church, in union with Christ, also made an exodus out of the grave. And Jesus comes to his disciples. He gives them his instruction. And then he ascends... But he doesn't send down a new law to govern God's people. He doesn't send down a new law to govern the church. He sends down his spirit so that the spirit can be their guide to guide them according to the law that was given in the first place. That's the new way of life. So Pentecost is popping off with all of these different illusions. And not only that, what we see in verses 9 through 11 is there is a table of nations, so to speak. And what Luke is doing is he's using a rhetorical device that was often used in the propaganda of the Roman Empire. In the propaganda of the Roman Empire, there would often be these lists of different places that were kind of put into a letter that, that were meant to show the extent of Caesar's rule. And what Luke is doing is he's picking up that rhetorical device to show you something of the scope of the lordship, the kingdom rule of the Lord. And that gives you an explanation for why they stepped out with such power, with such boldness, with such assurance. <clears throat> Excuse me. Jesus told the disciples that they were going to receive power to be his witnesses. And now we're seeing the fulfillment of that promise. But we need to think more deeply about the spiritual power with which Jesus is going to animate his people by his spirit. This is important. If you're someone who talks a lot about spirituality, and you realize now that you don't really know what you mean by that, that it's not as defined, I want to invite you to come and listen and understand Christian spirituality. Christian spirituality is given to us in a beautiful way in Luke Acts. And what... I want to do is make this connection that Luke makes for us. And here's the connection. In his gospel, Luke portrays Jesus as a man of the Spirit. Jesus is a man of the Spirit par excellence. His body in the gospel of Luke, this is what you see. Jesus, his physical body was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descended on him and rested on him like a dove in his baptism. Luke tells us that Jesus was full of the Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And after he defeated the temptation of Satan, Luke tells us that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then Luke tells us about Jesus' first sermon, which we mentioned last week. And in his first sermon, the first reference that Luke puts on the lips of Jesus is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Check it out. We mentioned last week that this outlines the kind of ministry, the kind of mission that Jesus undertook. And this is the very same ministry that we are to continue in his name. 
But what we see is just as Jesus relied upon the power of God's spirit, the anointing of God's spirit in order to work out this ministry, so must his church. So must his church. Jesus Christ was above all a man of the spirit. And his ministry, check it out, was a partnership with the spirit when he healed the sick, when he exercised demons, when he showed mercy, when he cleansed lepers, when he resisted temptation, when he prayed to the Father, when he worshiped the Lord, when he befriended sinners, when he sacrificed his life, and when he rose from the dead, Jesus was a man of the Spirit. And by the power of the Spirit, Jesus was everything that human beings were created to be. He was everything that human beings were created to be And that was because of the Spirit's anointing resting upon him. This is the power of the Spirit, and this is biblical spirituality. If you want to understand the contours of biblical spirituality, of Christian spirituality, it is filled out in the life and ministry of Jesus. That defines Christian spirituality, and that's why it's not vague, and that's why you can't do cafeteria style and take what you choose and leave what you don't want. Because you can't have it in piecemeal. That's not how the Spirit comes into our lives. And I think this is why it's so exciting for God's people. This this whole Pentecostal situation, this whole Pentecostal event is amazing for us because the Spirit is committed to animating us with the life of Jesus. This is not vague. Christian spirituality is all about Christiformity. Somebody say Christiformity. That is being formed into the likeness of Christ. That is the essence of biblical spirituality. If your spirituality, Christian, is not about becoming more like the Jesus of the Bible, not the Jesus of popular imagination. If your spirituality is not about becoming like the Jesus of Scripture, it is sub-Christian. It doesn't quite rise up to the level of Christian spirituality. When the Spirit, listen, when the Spirit is poured out on us, when the Spirit comes to you and me, He comes in His capacity as the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he moves in with luggage. Those 33 years that he spent with the Lord Jesus in his earthly life and ministry. And what he comes to do is bring that luggage and unpack it in your life. He comes in and he says, let me unpack some righteousness in you so that you care about justice and righteousness. Let me come in and unpack grace in your life so that you know how to be Gracious with people and patient so that you know how to forgive others and bear with them. Let me unpack some mercy in your life. Let me unpack some patience and some peace in your life. All of the riches of the Lord Jesus Christ are brought into your life through the Spirit. Every believer is indwelt by the same Spirit that animated the life of Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? Before you go presuming to know the future and what is possible and what is not possible in terms of transformation in your life, transformation in your relationships, you need to ask yourself the question, 
Do I really possess an intimate knowledge of the fact that the same spirit that animated the Lord Jesus is in my life? And if you realize that that is the case, but your life does not reflect that and your attitudes don't reflect it and your plans don't reflect it, then it's time to say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. The Spirit comes to make us everything that humans were created to be. The same Spirit who carried Jesus along and empowered him is implanted in every believer. And that is why the Bible says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will impart the riches of Jesus and flood our lives with his fullness. He gives us the same security in the Father's love that Jesus had. He calls us to the same redemptive purpose that Jesus had. The same boldness, the same heart of mercy. There is a major connection here that you need to make. You got to get this. The coming of the Spirit was as unique and important as the coming of Jesus. Y'all catching me? The cross and the resurrection, Pentecost is on equal par with it. It's the same heightened level event, biblically, theologically speaking. And here's why. Old school cat John Calvin helps us to understand the significance of the Spirit when he says, Without the ministry of the Spirit, the riches of Christ are worthless and of no value to us. I'll put it to you this way. I read a few weeks ago that there is this man who is a millionaire many times over. Last they checked, his fortune was worth over $300 million. But the man's fortune is all in Bitcoin, and he forgot the code to his account. And he only gets 10 tries before it locks him out forever. And the man is racking his brain trying to figure That is a picture for us of the significance of the Holy Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, you do not have access to the fortune that Christ won in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's the Spirit who opens it up so that you can live in that richness and fullness. When the Spirit comes into our lives... He comes in with power, transforming power. It's as if throughout the earthly life of, of Jesus Christ, it's as if in that partnership with Jesus, the Spirit was saying, ooh, I can't wait to bring all of this fullness into the lives of our people. I can't wait to work in their lives so that they love people like you love people, Jesus. I can't wait to transform them so that they serve like you serve, so that they're gracious like you're gracious, so that they live on mission like you have been on mission. He can't wait because the Spirit comes to strike us with the goodness, the faithfulness, and the beauty of Jesus. The Spirit comes to clone in us the heart of Jesus. That's his work. It's not pyrotechnics. This is the on-the-ground work. The Spirit wants you to love Jesus like he loves Jesus. The Spirit wants you to love the Father like he loves the Father. 
And the Spirit wants you to love the world like he loves the world. Do you see why the arrival of the Spirit is so critical for mission? Because you won't care and you won't have the power to be on this mission apart from him. If we try to do mission according to intellectual power, it will never go forward. If we try to do mission according to willpower, we'll run out of steam. If we try to rely upon financial power, we won't get there. Because there is nothing that money can do greater than the spirit. There are certain things that only God can do. And God does that work through his spirit. When you are struck with the goodness, faithfulness, and beauty of Jesus, there is a new power operative in your life, enabling you to faithfully participate in his mission, which brings us to our final point, spiritual participation. Look at what happens in this text. The spirit is poured out, and God's community is empowered to communicate, the text tells us, the mighty works of God. In other words, they are empowered for witness. I want you to appreciate the fact that these disciples rightfully could have been afraid that their lives would be in danger. This was not a, a stretch. But after the spirit descends, the first thing that Peter starts doing is preaching. He starts preaching. And not only that, all of the disciples start bearing witness verbally. And what you see is that God gives his people the grace of translational power. Now, it's easy to get caught up in this and be like, oh, I want to know if, if miraculous gifts of the Spirit are still available for today. Don't miss the point. The whole point of that spiritual enablement back then was to communicate the mighty works of God, to preach the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the fulfillment of Scripture in Jesus. That's what tongues were for. And we can move that forward now and say, at the very least, we know that the Spirit comes to help us translate the message of Jesus for our neighbors. When the Spirit comes, the disciples of Jesus are able to translate the story of Jesus into their surrounding cultures. Evangelistic enablement is taking place here. The Spirit of God enables the church to translate the message for their neighbors in a way that is not only intelligible, but resonant. Do you see that Jewish Peter has a distinctly Jewish sermon for his Jewish audience? That is from around the globe. This is the, the, the diaspora. They are coming for the festival of Pentecost. So they are Jews, but they are from different cultures. This is the first shot. And what we see happening is that the Spirit enables Peter to translate the message in a specifically Jewish way to Jewish people. And that's why 3,000 Jews come to faith in Christ, their Messiah. Do you see it? The same thing is at work when we rely upon the Spirit today. We have people that God has called us to, and it takes a lot of grace to be able to translate the message for late modern culture. There are so many subcultures in our place that need faithful witnesses to translate. We need the Spirit to help us to understand our neighbors and the contours of the gospel so that we can discern where the two can meet. 
the touch points. Do you see that Acts 2 is a direct reversal of everything that went haywire at Babel? In Genesis 11, if you're not familiar with the story, what happened is that all of the people of the world were on one accord for the purposes of rebelling against God. They wanted to build a tower up to the heavens, a ziggurat, so that they could ascend to God, so they could ascend to the heavens. And the text tells us that God came down, he saw what they were doing, and he broke up their wicked union. Now what happens in this text is that the holy man, Jesus Christ, ascends, and what he does is he restores that unity and that ability to translate across lines of difference. This is a reversal of Babel. There are so many subcultures in Northeast D.C. that need translation. What French sociologist Michael Michel Mafasoli calls urban tribes. He says that an urban tribe is a micro group of people who share common concerns and common values in an urban environment. You see, in Northeast D.C., there is a political subculture that needs translators. There's a hip-hop culture that needs translators. There's a native D.C. culture that needs translators. Life in the Spirit is a life of cultural translation for the sake of witness. But in order to be a cultural translator, you must keep in step with the Spirit, thinking deeply about the contours of the gospel and how the gospel can redeem people from various subcultures. You know that all of the language that's used for salvation in the Bible is contextual? Why the language of redemption? Because it's the language of freedom from slavery in a society that was dominated by slavery. It was the ultimate way of getting a touch point with anybody. Everybody understood the Greco-Roman slave system. And not only that, it was the same in the ancient Near East. He used a common image in order to express this salvation. The same thing goes with all of the other language of the Bible. It just doesn't drop down out of heaven. It is the language that makes sense to the neighbor. And that's what we're called to as well. It doesn't mean we abandon the language of Scripture. But it means that we need to think about how to translate for our neighbors. Which means you got to know the gospel. Which means you got to know the faith. Which means you got to be a student of your neighbors and listen when they talk. And pay attention to what they love. So that you can have meaningful dialogue with them. Concerning the hope that we have. What power are you operating on? What is the power source that you look to? For your life. Is it intellectual power? Because we got a lot of smart people in here. We were messing around in the office the other day and figured out that 10% of our congregation are PhDs or terminal degrees. Y'all smart. I give you that. Your pastor may not be as smart as you. That's all right. But I wanted you to know that intellectual power is not enough to get you through, to live a life of fullness and faithfulness. Are you relying on willpower, just trying harder, just doubling down, making your resolutions? It's not enough. Financial power, not enough. The real power for human life and flourishing is found in the Spirit of God who brings the gospel of Jesus Christ to bear in our lives. 
And as I close, I want to tell you the clearest way to gauge whether you are operating in the power of the Spirit is by assessing your prayer life. Don't get quiet. It's okay. (laughs) That's how you gauge it. The prayerless life is the powerless life. Fact. Fact. Maybe some of those frustrations in your life, maybe some of those things that are really weighing you down are so heavy and so frustrating because you have not given proper attention to prayer. This is not to guilt you. I'll let the Spirit do the work of conviction where he needs to. But this is to let you know it's accessible. It's accessible. I want you to understand that the work that we do with the Daily Prayer Project is not just about personal piety and devotion. It's about Christiformity and mission. Have you ever considered that we are more fearful and less fruitful because we're less prayerful? I believe that the more repentant we become about our prayerlessness, the more fruitful, faithful, and joyful we will become in our mission. It is in communion with God through prayer that we become secure in our identity. I don't need these people to like me, which is often what causes us to abandon mission. I want them to like me. I want them, I want to be in the circle. You don't need to be in that circle. You're in the circle where God's love is strongest, the circle of triune love through union with Christ. You're in the beloved family of God. Don't sacrifice your faith to be liked, especially when you're loved. That's where we become secure in our identity, resolute in our calling, and expectant in our mission. The spiritual power of God is not magical. It's liturgical. Which is to say that the, 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 the ordinary way that God operates is not by a, 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 a quick zaps from heaven. He doesn't, his spirituality is not a micro, microwavable thing. Christian spirituality, the power of God takes hold of our lives in the slow the quiet, the mundane, and the consistent work of prayer. The more that you develop an instinct for prayer, inviting the power of God and casting your cares and your fears on the Lord, the more faithfully you'll participate in the mission of God. Life gets really clear in the prayer closet. Surprisingly, there are a lot of things that remain a mystery to us, but the Christian life becomes clear. The order of your loves becomes clear. The priority of God and life for him becomes clear. The priority of love and the clarity and the contours of love become clear. Benedict of Nursia had this phrase that became popular in the church. And that phrase was ora et labora. Pray and work. Pray and work. That's the life. So let's operate out of God's power for our shared mission. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.